Hi, I'm Ice-T and welcome to Let's Chat Cash, a podcast about women and their money. Each episode is a frank and open discussion with one woman about her personal relationship with money. My hope is that by having these conversations, we can break down some of the stigma of talking about money and empower each other as women to take more control over our finances. This week's episode is with Tracy Duodu. Tracy has three streams of income, which we'll hear her discuss in just a moment. But the one we spoke more about in this conversation was her property development business. We spoke about how the opportunity to invest presented itself in the most unlikely way. The responsibility of doing this on behalf of not just herself, but her mother's financial future. The ethics of serviced accommodation, that's Airbnb letting to you and me, and setting financial goals. Now, there are images to help illustrate this week's episode over on letschatcash.com, so you might want to check out that while you listen. Be sure to stick around to the end for my more money section. This is where I share something from the personal finance world, which I found helpful, and I think you might too. But first, I started off by asking Tracy how she makes her money. So I have a a job, a regular job. I'm an alumni relations manager for a business school. What does that mean? Essentially, I look after the relationships between the business school and its alumni. I manage a team and a major part of our touch points is events. So we do a lot of events ranging from massive events for 500 people to business masterclasses to small events. Also a lot of comms. So that's newsletters, that's invitations, that's publications um, and I manage all that. I also have a really small occasion cakes business that I run from my kitchen Fun. and I run that with my mother and then um, I have a property business and that obviously is my, my other stream of income. I guess it's more than cakes, I should probably have said that first. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you first gain an interest in property? So I've always lived, it's just been me and my mother. Initially we just, we lived in a council flat and you know the right to buy scheme obviously was available and I was really adamant and you know at that time I was I was still in my teens actually and I said to my mom you know this seems like a really good idea I really like the idea of it I think we should and you know I, I knew small things about you know the idea of getting yourself on the ladder and you know the idea that if you're on this ladder you can climb up this ladder somehow you know people were somehow getting something smaller and then they were exchanging it for something bigger and then but you need to be on the ladder so I that's that's something I just knew in my mind that you have to be on this ladder so (laughs) so um so we got on this ladder and actually it was a brilliant decision how old were you then remember 16 okay so at this point, your mum's, you're 16, you're at school and your mum's working at TFL. Yeah. And so you're encouraging her to to take up this right to buy scheme that's been made available to you. Yeah. How long had you been living in this flat for at that point? We'd been living in this flat since I was one. Wow. So you've yeah. been there like 16 years. Yeah. Or 15 years, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was a baby. So you get offered this scheme and you're like, mum, we need to do this. Yeah. Okay. So did you kind of, even at that age, were you kind of researching and helping her to work out what that involved? Yeah, so my mother's, you know, always quite been really open with me um, about, you know, sort of exposing me to what's involved in things. So, you know, obviously everything's in her name and she's getting all the letters, she's getting the information from a broker and whatever. But I was being really exposed to that and um, she's always been... I guess from the time that I started showing real interest in things and starting to have a bit more of an adult mindset, um, you know, she's been really consultative with me. So really open to me having a voice um, and sort of talking things through because I was the person that she had 
to to do that with um so yeah I was really quite involved actually from you know that that stage in what was going on obviously again like I said obviously the property was not in my name at that time none of these things were being addressed to me the broker was not talking to me in the conversation he was talking to my mother but these were things that we discussed as a team so you do that when you're 16 so then what happens after that so then obviously at some point I go off to university and that's great um and then I get back and something happens when you go to university because you kind of go and you live somewhere else for three years and you accumulate all this stuff and then you come back to your home which for us was a two-bedroom flat which was very you know quite spacious we had no space suddenly like (laughs) I've got brought this whole other life back with me and we were looking at it and my mother's always wanted a house she'd always wanted to live in a house we lived on a ground floor flat and she always wanted to live in a house and I said you know we should you know what I knew was like right we're on this ladder now like where's where's the next rung you know let's get on this next rung of the ladder and my mum really wanted a house so I started looking at houses and this was when I got really really into sort of my first sort of big like property research in terms of looking at what's available what are the prices of things around us really coming to understand you know what things were costing and actually the house that we then did buy together yeah it was one of my finds we bought it for 235 and I know well it was 2008 so many people so many of my mum's friends said don't buy don't buy it's not a good time credit crunch had come all over the news and the whole world was going to just fall into the toilet or something I don't know (laughs) Um, and everyone was saying don't buy don't buy don't buy it's not necessarily the worst time to buy because actually just after that it was really difficult to get a mortgage Um, and I'm really really glad that I really kept that going said we should buy this you know it was in our affordability it was a house with a garden she'd always wanted a house with a garden and yeah you know you buy a house for two three five in 2008 this is a three-bedroom house with a small study slash tiny bedroom on top of that um with a large kitchen and a garden now not going to be that far from a crossrail station it's it's nearly doubled in value since then so it's crazy isn't it it is crazy and so at this point now you go from you're living in your mum's kind of flat but now you've gone to buy this house and you decided you made the decision that you're going to do that together so now yeah. you are now a joint owner yeah. of this house is that correct mm-hmm. and what made you decide to do it that way Well, I mean, at that stage, I'm a year out of university. I'm not going to be able to buy a property by myself. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons, obviously, that it makes sense for us to have bought together. I mean, the the other thing is that obviously because of my mother's age, the the term of mortgage you get is not as long as if, you know, I was buying with somebody my age. You know, it's not necessarily a case of something that I'm going to need to inherit. It's something that I own. Um, so it was really important that we both owned that house and then a couple of years ago my mother got made redundant and obviously when you get made redundant you're suddenly you kind of it's it's a it's a downer but you do have an opportunity like suddenly you have a chunk of money that you never had before and this is not millionaire money at all that we're talking what did she do what was her job so my mum works for london underground and so when they close all the ticket offices she lost her job but actually you know it turned around and really it was kind of a blessing actually at the time it seemed disastrous but actually it wasn't 
a friend of hers was, you know, they were all talking about, well, what are you going to do with your severance money? And, you know, she was thinking at one point, oh, I'll just put it into the house. And a friend of her said, oh, no, before you do that, you should consider your options. Have you thought about property? And then my mum said, oh, my daughter's really interested in property, but she's not really done anything. And then this friend said, oh, you know, there's this course. Maybe you should have a look at that. And so I went along to go look at this course. My mum said, oh, you know, go, go and have a look. And it was really, really interesting. And, and for me, I mean, what was amazing was that my mum believed in me so much that she said, you know, I'll pay for you to be able to do this course. Mm. And, and so she did that and um, was able to use, to get myself started, some of the severance money that she received, you know, to, to, to get me started on my first project. So that was yeah an amazing opportunity out of something that in a way was seeming like not such a great thing so yeah but then also were you like pretty scared because that's quite a massive kind of responsibility on your shoulders as well this is like we're not just talking you know this is she was doing this job for quite a long time how many years had she been working before when she was made redundant she had been with them for at least 15 years. So that so that's like quite a yeah like a big thing to have happened and then you to just take this on. Did yeah. like what were the different thought processes and decisions that you had to go through before you decided okay yeah we're not just going to do something I guess fairly safe which might have been the option of putting it straight into your mortgage well yeah. her you know her house mortgage but to try and use that money to grow something else like what what were the thought processes? I think it was kind of in two stages because initially the first investment really was into me being able to do the course. And at that stage, you know, it was a case of, well, if I do the course and then the, the still the most sensible thing to do is to put the money into the house or something else, then that could still happen. But I would never have just, you know, gone out there trying to invest in property without knowing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. That would have been ridiculous. But what I did do was get myself educated. You know, it was over a year of going to training and to spend a lot of time listening to people who have been doing this for years and at that point you know when I then was equipped with knowledge but also kind of felt backed up by knowing I had these connections even though I know I don't know everything and I never will know everything I felt a lot more confident to to step out and say right I, I think we can invest and the key thing I did you know was I my first project I worked with a business partner and in that situation you've got two heads you know the issues are shared the problems are shared the the, the challenges are shared and you know you're able to cover a lot more it's quite hard to do quite a big project when you work full-time as well so tell me about the project that you embarked on in Liverpool okay so this project was a property it's a it's well it's a massive house at some point uh, historically that had been converted into six individual flats some of them were one beds and some were two and actually we found this property in an auction catalogue now auctions are a whole new world and well were a whole new world for me but you can find great deals on auctions because motivated sellers take their properties to auction they want a quick sale when you go to auction you have to complete within 28 days and if you've ever bought property you know that 28 days is super fast so we found this property and and initially we you know we'd done some research we'd been looking around this area we've been looking at a number of different properties and this was one that we went to go look at you can actually go and view properties that are available at auction 
the auction is not the necessarily the first place you should see the property. You should go and see a property if you want to buy it at auction and you really should get a survey done on it. That's not me giving advice. That's just me saying, <laughs> don't buy something you haven't seen. So we went to see it and really liked it. I really liked the building. It's, uh, you know, it's got that old brick look to it and it just looked like a really good piece of building you know it was, it's actually quite big as well six flats and so we did some numbers you know and that's the thing the thing you do you, you come back and you look at the asking price and you do some numbers and you say well what strategies can I do with it and what money is it making now and you start to balance the, the sheets and you start to say well do these returns work for me and and up to what price do these returns work for me so we had done all of our calculations and we knew exactly how far we'd be willing to go with the price of it um, serviced accommodation, which is you know sort of the holiday lets thing, is something that we'd been both been really really interested in, and it was something that we wanted to trial. And we knew that this property had one vacant flat, so it was actually tenanted bar one of the flats at the time. One was just being vac- had just been vac- vacated, and so we thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity to get to trial out both because we already know that the returns work with the tenants that are in situ. And then we could try out this strategy with the empty flat. So we thought, this is a great opportunity. It's a great win-win. So we went to the auction. Actually, when the auction happened, I was not even in the country. So I was on the telephone in Hong Kong. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was in Hong Kong for work with my other job. So I was doing an event in Hong Kong when the hammer went down. And luckily it went down in our favour. It went down even at a price lower than, you know, where we had set our cap. And that's the other thing with an auction. You have to have a cap. Otherwise, you know, it could get out of control. And then before you know it, you've bought something that now is no longer you know, giving you the type of returns you thought you were going to get. So yeah, so then we got the property and then we we're like, yeah, amazing, great. Um, and we'd obviously seen it. We'd had a full building survey done on it. We knew that it wasn't about to fall apart, but we knew it needed some work. It needed some work. When you revisit a property after you've bought it and then the whole reality of it sets in, you do have a moment, especially I think if you do something so big and it's your first where you think, Oh, Lord Jesus, what have I done? (laughs) Um, Because, you know, you've been buoyed along by a lot of confidence in terms of what you know and what you've read and how much you've calculated things will cost to fix, etc. But then there is the, again, that real reality and the real panic of it does set in. There are moments of it, and that's the truth, of you thinking, right, okay, this is actually loads of money. Um, There is work to be done. I've not necessarily done everything that needs to be done here before. So this is going to be a journey. And we just we just went by it step by step. You know, we knew what we'd learned. We knew what made sense. We were lucky, not, not so lucky. We knew this before buying, but there were tenants in situ. So once you start doing things in a property, if it's vacant, that's just money burning a hole in your pocket. But if you've got tenants in situ, at least you know that you know, the the expenses are being covered. So we at least knew whilst we were figuring out how much work we were going to do, that that was being covered. And then we did a way more massive refurb than we thought we were going to do. (laughs) Um, Initially, we were going to do a little what they call buff and fluff. (laughs) Buff and fluff is where you just kind of, it's just a bit like, you know, it's top level cosmetic, just a little bit of, oh, just clean up here we'll just paint here and then, <laughs> yeah and there were just a few other things where it was just like okay if we want to really do this properly you know and let's not do something that means we're gonna constantly be buffing and fluffing because that's that's what we would have been doing if we did that we just said let's pull this building right back to what it really really could be 
and let's go for those really higher returns. So we said, look, let's not bother with this, you know, just simple buy to lets. Let's go for the higher end service accommodation, higher end holiday sort of short term lets. But we're going to have to spend the money. We're going to have to really do it up. And we did. And that took a long time. You know, if ever you're doing a project that's big and someone quotes you time or money, add 50%. Because, <laughs> yeah, because it needs that. If they say it's going to be done by June, no, it's October. <laughs> um, and, and that's fine. And that's another learning that we had along the way and it was a tough year if I'm honest it was a tough year there was so many different challenges I don't know how much detail you want me to go into but there's a lot involved in getting through to the end of this massive refurb and then at the end of it we have this amazing building we've raised the value up by so much here we like a percentage definitely more than 70 percent what yeah because I mean the, the the value of it now it's not quite at double what we bought it for, but it's not necessary. It's not actually too, too far off. Wow. But then you've got to remember, this is six flats. We put in six new kitchens, six new bathrooms. Right. Changed the layouts, pulled back to brick the entire stairwell area. You know, it's a lot of a lot of work did go into it. So we're going to put up some pictures on... Um... My, on the website on yeah. letschatcash.com so you can see some of the before and after of kind of how the scale of this project and how big it was and some pictures of what you did to the yeah. flats that'd be cool Airbnb gets kind of a bad rep in a lot of places right yeah. so I mean how I guess how do you balance all of that in your mind in terms of this is a business but then also you know some people feel like Airbnb isn't doing great things for a lot of communities like how do you feel about that in relation to maybe the property that you undertook in Liverpool? I mean I can understand that there there are going to be areas where people feel that these houses are for people to be living in and you know aren't just for for holiday makers but I mean the truth of it is is the area in particular that this property is in there is an abundance of properties. There actually is an abundance of properties. Not all of them are fit and ready for people to live in, if, if, if we're honest. Some of them are, are abandoned and, and what have you. But a big area of you know the growth of this, this city is actually to do with people visiting and people coming. And there are a lot of visitors coming and there is a lot of investment happening in the area to attract people to come to it. If you want to attract people to come to somewhere, you also need to give them options of where they can stay. And they do need options. The hotel format doesn't work for everybody. And I mean, what I will also say actually is, you know, obviously we we mentioned that we had tenants and obviously we they didn't have anywhere to live anymore, did they? Because we, we turned this into, you know, sort of holiday lets. But we actually, as we were doing the work, found each one of our tenants another place to live mm. and had and actually helped them all move and got them all sorted before we even you know, nobody was forced out we didn't give notice with like a month's notice we just let them know we were changing the purpose but we were all gonna we we're gonna help them all find somewhere else to live within that postcode and actually we did rehouse every single one of our tenants using our management company as well to help us and we helped all of them move and nobody was forced out you know if somebody hadn't left we just worked on a different flat whilst they were still living there. We had someone that was still 
in place until I, I think four of the flats were finished before the last person moved out and he just wasn't ready to go yet and we didn't want to create a horrible situation or displace anybody but the, the, the truth of it is I think Airbnb particularly in London is a contentious issue there is serious lack of affordable housing um, and obviously I don't know if you're aware but in London there is a, a limit to how much you can use a property for airbnb and that type of thing so there is the 90-day limit on properties in in london that there isn't in other cities and there might be some cities that want to introduce that but i think the the key thing to do is to make sure you're always in line with the regulations that you're in line with what the council wants to have happen you know council is aware of what it needs properties for um certain councils really welcome this and don't welcome other types of property use, certain councils that other ways. There are councils, you know, for example, Brighton and Hove Council that doesn't want any more shared housing being created. They want more Airbnbs because they feel like their city is overrun with shared housing. So I think it's also being aware of what is needed, what is wanted in the city that, you know, that you're operating in. Like, was it important to you to invest in property in a way that was sort of ethical? I would never have wanted to invest in property in a way that I thought was unethical. Like I said, and I think it did come across a lot in the type of training I received, was that investing in property successfully is all about creating win-wins for everybody. So I think there has to be a, a, a certain amount of ethics to it. You know, I wouldn't invest in any property there are so many ways to invest in property unethically. There are so many ways to invest in property where essentially you are exploiting those tenants. I mean, I've seen so many properties like that. I've viewed properties and if you look at the paper and the figures, the figures make crazy sense for your bank balance. Could not make sense for your conscience if you'd ever gone to see some of these properties. And you know, there are people in certain cities and certain areas where they need to live somewhere. And some of these properties that are being provided for people are just not good enough. I could never invest in property like that. You know, when we took on this this property itself, you know, a big part of why we ended up doing, well, we started some of the work was realizing the truth of some of the facilities that just weren't good enough for tenants. You know, and, and certain things that we hadn't realized, you know, we'd done our building survey. It was more about, you know, the, the, the nature of the building and how it was, but, actually getting to know all of our tenants and realizing how the previous landlord had just not had their best interests at heart you know it was a big deal for us and we made a lot of changes that actually we then were ending up ripping down we knew we were going to rip down just to make sure that those few months that they were with us you know first of all we were not in breach of any safety laws or, you know, I, I can't not have, you know, proper carbon monoxide detectors and smoke detectors in people. And this was the situation that they were in, wow. um, that the safety wasn't up to scratch. Um, some of the services were not up to scratch. We had a boiler in there that was atrocious. It was still legal, but it was atrocious. So I would never feel comfortable having property like that. And there are a lot of properties like that. And you can make money on properties like that. People need to live somewhere. I could never invest like that. Mm. But there is, in the UK, and particularly up north, there is enough housing stock. There isn't necessarily enough good quality housing, but there is enough housing stock for people to be housed. 
and some people are doing it really really on the cheap and I would certainly rather do service accommodation than do poor quality rental accommodation for people to live in because I can't I couldn't do that mm-hmm. and so from the outset it sounds like a lot of it's quite risky oh yeah so how do you not go mad <laughs> how do you not go mad who says I'm not mad <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of things you know anything that you think in this life has a reward attached to it has a risk involved what you have to have done is calculated that risk you know you need to be really aware of your risks your risks should not shock you if the risk has shocked you then you've made the wrong decision and you've taken the wrong risk um so you always need to know what's your get out what's your escape that's how you keep yourself sane because at points when you look at the property and you're like oh gosh what have i done you remember what your backstop is oh oh it's okay my backstop is i will just go back to a regular traditional buy to let and it still makes me money i'm okay oh, my backstop is I actually can just sell this to this other investor who really wants this type of property. That's fine. That's my backstop. So with, if your risks are calculated and if you've always got your exit planned, your risks can scare you. They can stress you, but they shouldn't defeat you because you know what you're going to do if you need to action something. You know, that's, that's what you need to do with risk. If you go into a risk with no plan, I mean, you're a fool. (laughs) I I just can't really put it any other way. Um, How do you find the time? (laughs) I genuinely don't know how I find the time. It's funny, you know, that such a corny saying that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. I genuinely do believe that. Um, When you are, when you have your back up against the wall and it feels like there is definitely no way you could take on something else and something happens somehow you make it work you know somehow you make it fit in so in some ways the busier I am the better I am at being really really good with the time that I do have like I'll find that if I have a week where I have like for this very week actually I have just landed yesterday from a holiday I have four cakes to have completed by <laughs> to have completed by Saturday. I have to somehow fit in that this week. I'm going to an auction, uh, and I have so much consolidation to do from a massive work trip to China. But it will all come together. I know that I'm not even stressed about it. Like I, I'm sitting here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> It will just all come together because I know it will come together because it has to. So, And so what do you um, wish that you knew when you started that you know now? Oh, oh. Everybody else's estimation, you need to add 50%. I cannot reiterate that enough. That goes for your builders. That goes for any contractors you use. That goes definitely for your solicitor because your solicitor will not make those things happen in the time frame your solicitor says they'll make them happen in. It's not going to happen. Maybe the only person who's on time is your broker. Um, <laughs> and even sometimes your broker is slack. The, the truth of it is, is that some of these estimations they're not every single case is different so these estimations are always based on best case scenario you're not going to have the best case scenario every single time and you have to learn to not be disheartened by the fact that something took eight months rather than taking the four months you thought it would take always plan a contingency always always expect that it will take longer so you need to be able to afford it for a bit longer okay what about uh do you set goals have you got financial goals 
I do have financial goals and I think I haven't necessarily been as rigid and as you know so clear with my financial goals as I think I want to be in the future but it's quite a strange one you know when you put something very specific out there and you are working towards it if even if you're not fully paying attention at some point I, I've just found that actually it does come to you so I mean I've just gotten a new job that I'll be starting in the new year and funnily enough sort of well my, my new agreed salary is a figure that I kind of threw out to myself about a year ago and it's not what I'm earning now I remember thinking yeah I mean that would be that would be good Ah, ah. and you know that figure kind of stuck with me and it kind of stuck with me when I was looking at other jobs it stuck with me when I was looking at other jobs and seeing that they weren't quite offering that but I still didn't really move from that figure because once I had that stuck with me that was kind of what I felt was okay and I had a period of time where I wasn't necessarily very actively looking for new roles because you know I was just really busy with other things or it just wasn't the right time but but actually when something did come into place and something that actually was really right for me that I'm quite excited about moving on to that was the figure that it, it came to and that's where it stopped so you know I think having really clear clear figures being really specific about your goals I think it is really important I know a lot of people in property and areas like that do things like mind mapping etc and you know some of that stuff doesn't really work for me I mean it's a mind map it's a beautiful collage I mean it's Uh, like a vision board it's like a vision board but it's very very structured um so um there's there's this um this man called Brian Main and goal mapping is his thing he, he I mean you, you can look at it online for Brian Main he's got a lot of free resources and it shows you how to create your own uh, goal map and I know a lot of people that love using that system and I like the idea but it, it it's quite rigid for me and it doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily fully work for me but I do definitely believe in having some real specifics and so I think I'm going to be quite intentional from now on and being very very specific about certain things that I do want for myself financially and otherwise because I think you know it you do find yourself working towards it you do find yourself making sure that you're not accepting things that aren't that or that you're working towards that so yeah what does actually having different income streams mean to you like what does what does having money Mm. actually mean to you in terms of like in an emotional sense it's about having options having choice I think a lot of the times we're kind of indoctrinated with this idea that you go to work you earn a certain amount of money you divvy it up between all your bills and responsibilities you have as much fun as you kind of can have with the little bit that's left and then you just carry on doing that every single month And that doesn't leave enough space for having real options. Most of our jobs would not allow us to say, I don't know, we want to just go off for three months somewhere. That's just not an option. That seems so ridiculous. That seems ludicrous. But then in a way, it's like, well, why is that ludicrous? And so I think for me, the idea of being able to create ways where I generate my income, where I dictate how that happens and it can work for me, is that idea that I could create options for myself and options that also help the people around me, you know, knowing that I would would have the freedom to be able to say, I'm going to go see my grandma, you know, she can't move because she's on dialysis, so she's got to stay where she is, but I could just get up and, and go be there. I, I have to really, really plan that right now. 
Um, and most of us, even, you know, those of us that, I mean, I, I can't say that I'm doing terribly, I'm not doing badly, but I still don't have that type of freedom. Um, so I'd say definitely for me, streams of income, having money, having access to that type of finance, it's about having options. You can find a link to Tracy's Instagram in the show notes. And photos from the project we discussed in Liverpool are up on letschatcash.com. Right, now it's time for my more money section. This week, I discovered Vestpod, a resource for women wanting to manage their money. They've got a blog where you can snoop through people's anonymous money diaries called What on Earth Are We Doing With Our Money? It's a bit like Refinery29, but it's more focused on income rather than spending. The website also has a handy guide to working out your net worth and thoughts on why monitoring this is useful. I've also spotted that they run money events on topics such as investing and money and mindfulness, which I think sound really intriguing and I'm definitely planning to attend one myself in the new year. I'll pop a link to Vestpod up on the show notes. Don't forget, if you want to continue the money conversation, come find me on Instagram and Twitter at Let's Chat Cash or all my contact details are up on letschatcash.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give it a rating and review in your podcast app as it really helps other people to find the show. Cheers and I'll be back with a new episode next week.